Lord, we want to thank you for your word that we've just heard read to us this morning. As we delve into it and as we kind of get around and amongst it, we pray uh, that you you would um, you would confront us with it where we need to be confronted, and that you that you would uh, heal us with it where we need to be healed. And uh, we just want to we pray your spirit would be at work amongst us now. Uh, maturing us in our faith and growing us with affection for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. It's actually quite a... um, As I've been sort of sitting with this text uh, all week, I have not enjoyed it one little bit um, because it's kind of of been at work on me. And it's always always a tough gig to preach from a passage uh, when you know um, you've got work to do in that area of your life yourself so you know over the week it's been it's been interesting for me to go through that process and 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 myself respond uh to this to this text and and that kind of thing so we're going to give it a rip and and see how we go eh it's a bit of a sobering reality as well and and it's kind of a reflection on the human condition really uh but the history of humanity is more colored is more um Chronicalized, if you like, by our conflicts rather than by our achievements. There's no, there's no great stories of, of human collaboration, of, of people coming together uh, and laying down their rights, laying down their ambitions for the good of others. You don't find that uh, scattered throughout our history. That's not what carries our story uh, forward. If you pick up any history book of humanity... Its chapters and its pages will be divided by conflicts. Conflict after conflict after conflict. This person rose to power. How did they get there? Conflict. This this empire took over the world and ruled for a while. How did that happen? Conflict. The history of humanity is a history of conflict, of war, of tearing each other apart. It's just what we do over and over again. And then there's this one little, as I was looking at, oh, yeah, we, we, we went to the moon once. And that was sort of, you know, 20th of July, 1969, humanity went to the moon, great moment of achievement. But even then, we had the Vietnam War. We had the Angolan War of Independence. There was a rebellion in Defor. The Atrium War of Independence was on. Guatemalan Civil War, Mozambique War of Independence, Northern Ireland was blowing up. All of that stuff going on around the globe, a globe in conflict while we were celebrating one of our greatest achievements. We are creatures of conflict. We see it in families. We see it in marriages. We see it in business. We see it in sporting teams. Even when we have these agreed goals, these agreed values, these agreed ambitions... Conflict of a destructive nature arises. Now, there's good conflict. Uh, not all conflict is bad. We need, we need a certain amount of conflict in us to be able to grow, to be able to, be able to mature. We need that pushback sometimes. But time and time again, what we see is destructive, unchecked conflict managing to manifest itself in all areas of life, including the church including in the one community that only exists because the dividing walls of conflict and hostility that Paul talks about, these things that have pushed us apart, these things that that normally tear us apart, 
have been pulled down, have been, have been um, undone by Jesus, by the blood of Christ. The bond that holds the church together is that we are being transformed out of conflict. We are being renewed in our lives by experience the grace of God to us in Jesus. His love for us in Jesus. This, we say, has brought peace into our lives. And because we are now children of peace, we should be peacemakers. That was part of last week's passage. God has brought peace into our souls and he has done it without distinction. He didn't look at some of you and go, yes, yes, you are worthy of my peace. But you know, no distinction. Nobody had any qualifications that allowed them to get at the front of the line. And no one had any, anything that pushed them to the back. There was even ground around the cross. Everyone has the same story of God's love to them. And this community should be marked by that. It should be marked by the presence of the peacemaker, the peacemaking God. His presence in our lives and in our community should actually create a culture that is distinctive, that is, that is just radically different to, to the one that organises and orientates the world, if you like. The, the people and the communities, the empires, all these things that grow out of that system that have, that have written our story of conflict. That story should not be continuing to be written in here. And it's the lack of that distinctiveness and the similarity that, 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 that James is finding in the church with the world, with, you know, this similarity still in the lives of Christian that James is now wanting to drill into, that James is wanting to dive into, to get into. James's claim, his foundation that underpins this drilling uh, into our lives with these little practical applications uh, Bill looked at the tongue with you last week uh, that he's now doing, is that genuine faith, if genuine faith exists in the people, then it works. It works to save them and it works to create a culture of peace, a culture of love, a culture of no conflict. Genuine faith saves and transforms us. Your faith should be visible. Your faith should be encountered inwardly and outwardly. And the only reason that that wouldn't uh, take place is because you, you've got this phony, fake faith. It, it's just a pious formula, a pious creed that you might recite. Or, or it's become formulaic. It's lost its intimacy. It's lost its glory. And now other things are coming in and competing for the space that it once had. And James says that this is the reason that conflicts exist. You are at war with your passions. And the cure, James says is to reprioritize those passions, to return to intimacy with God. Our hearts have become spiritual adulterous towards God by getting into bed again with the values of the world. However, God gives more grace to the heart that can resubmit itself. Not gives more grace so that the heart can resubmit itself. It's probably a better way of putting it. Humble itself to have just one lover again. It isn't divided anymore in its loyalties and its affection. That grieves the relational distance that their divided affections have caused between them and God. And, and that's this passage, if you like, in a nutshell. We, we kind of run through it. 
But because, you know, you don't want to be here for five minutes, you want to be here for 45 or 50, let let me elaborate, let me explain. James is addressing so-called Christians here. It's not an observation of the world in general. This This is a stinging, if you like, ongoing correction of the church, which is acting in a most unwise manner imaginable. And, and, and this, and this behaviour stands into stark contrast to the nature of a, a society that, that, that's born out of, that grows out of the true wisdom, wisdom that proceeds from above. That was, you know, part of last week's. There should be that kind of culture, that kind of wisdom should produce good fruit. It should have uh, authentic and honest discourse happening. It should, it should build relational peace. And as we said, peace is not the absence of conflict. That's not peace as described here. Uh, It's an environment, peace comes because an environment which has conflict in it has a greater presence in it as well that helps to resolve conflict so that it doesn't uh, escalate, so that it doesn't get off the chain, so that it's not nurtured and hiding away and becoming destructive. James in his pastoral role is kind of like a mom or a dad uh, coming into a room and going, right, you two, uh, why are you fighting and what are you fighting about? And before the combatants you know, can have a chance to start blaming the other side, uh, can have a start to start uh, you know, pointing the finger and validating their actions and locate the cause of you know, their, their arguments and the problems as being external to them, as being you know, on, with someone else or, or somewhere else, James, who is a very progressive parent by the looks of thing, a very progressive pastor, he uses reason uh, rather than the rod here, although the reason's pretty hard-hitting. He says, actually, you know, before you talk, the problem is in your own heart. James is saying, let's be honest. At least have the self-awareness and courage to know yourself. Even if that means admitting your self-centeredness, even if that means... Uh, coming to terms with your wickedness, even if that means admitting your sinfulness. You see, the source of these quarrels, the source of these conflicts, quarrels and conflicts, which is a, a pairing of words that describes the, describes, you know, the overall war and also skirmishes that break out in that, in that overall war. This is an environment of conflict and it's fueled by your, your, your pleasures, which is a the, the drives of your heart not being met how they want to be met. Now, pleasures are good. You were made, you were created for pleasures. You are meant to enjoy life. You are meant to enjoy food. You are meant to enjoy sport. You are meant to enjoy marriage and sex and you are meant to enjoy work and you're meant to enjoy four-wheel drives and T3X rifles and all that kind of stuff. But the absence of these things in your life should not cause you to act incongruently with your faith. It should not be a, a, a war within you that expresses itself in harming those around you because you feel like you haven't got what you need. Their absence should not be the soil of envious comparison and frustrated desires that cause us to be murderous in our attitudes of our heart and murderous in the actions of our hands. 
James has in mind here the disordered love priorities that leads to a murderous heart, which, which is just as bad as far as Jesus is concerned in the Sermon on the Mount. A murderous heart is just as bad as actually murdering someone in all reality. It is the disordered love priorities that cause these things. And, and, and it's disordered love priorities that cause the conflicts within us and these kind of uh, things going on. In a marriage, this takes place when an insecure husband feels like he hasn't been given the respect that he needs, the affirmation you know, that he craves. And so he makes his wife feel small and a marriage becomes a war and full of skirmishes, armed with nurtured bitterness and unresolved conflicts. There's no peace in that. At work, it becomes murderous in our hearts and our deeds when we feel like we've been overlooked for a promotion or some kind of recognition in favor of, of someone who is less capable or less productive. And so we gossip and we white ant and we agitate around the place. And work becomes a war zone full of skirmishes of envious practices and unresolved conflicts, no peace. In a church, it takes place when our hearts want from church what it was never designed to give. The passions of our hearts through performance and position. When church becomes about us and not God. When it becomes about what we do and not who we are. When it's more important to sing for God than than to God. When it's more important to be seen serving than actually to be served by God himself. When it's more important to have a sermon that's just the right length of time and balanced with humor and application than it is to have a sermon that's just just revealing the goodness and the greatness and the grace of God. You know, when a sermon becomes more about the preacher than it does about what he's preaching about. When church becomes a place for us to be loved and adored for all our abilities and our gifts rather than coming here and loving and adoring God for all his greatness and his gifts then we will look at each other with envy we will nurture bitterness we will act out of insecurities we will have wars and conflicts over how to sing a song over how to do ministry over who should do these things we go to war over how to serve God it's extraordinary because we have disordered love priorities in a community of people who only exist because they've been supremely and unconditionally loved by God in Jesus. Wars and conflicts in a Christian community happen because we have fundamentally forgotten who we are and we have forgotten why we're here. And James says the reason we forget, the reason for this is lost or lack of intimacy with God. The diagnostic tool for, for this condition, uh, for, for, for conflict and how it arises, is your prayer life. That's what he said. If you want to know why these things are happening, the first question you've got to ask is what's your prayer life look like? Are you praying? How are you praying? Did you know uh, that for the last four weeks, maybe five weeks, before you even set a foot in this building, there are two ladies who are praying for you, praying for you individually, praying for you. On their heart every morning, every Sunday morning, for a good 20 minutes before the service, they are praying that as you come in here, that your hearts would be warm with affection for God. Did you know that? 
What does that make you feel about coming to church now? To know that there's somebody praying to that end for you as you come into this building. And James says you have conflicts because you don't pray. You don't take your desires and your pleasures to God. You take matters into your own hands. You exercise independence from God. That's what a lack of prayer is. It's independence from God. And you determine what is good. And you seek it in your own efforts. Or when you pray, it's not to have your heart shaped by the goodness of God and the grace of God. You've either forgotten that or you don't trust its goodness anymore. So your prayers are more about co-opting God into your plans, your desires, using God as a means to get your desires rather than God being the desire, rather than God being the good thing that you're going to in prayer. Prayer, prayer is submission to God. It's saying, I I am coming to you as a child. Loss of prayer, lack of prayer, dryness of prayer is an independence statement. James says that these approaches of the heart, they show more trust, more affection, more practical love in a worldly approach to life. To, to the value systems that say, you should just have whatever you want. The desires of your heart should be yours. Even if those desires come at the expense of someone else. Even if that leads to conflict. You're showing that you're more like that than, than having a heart that trusts the goodness of God. Exercised through faith in prayer. That just delights in God. Seeks his input trusts that what he is going to bring to the table is best for us and that is going to lead to peace in our lives. And James calls on some very powerful biblical imagery to describe this kind of attitude, this kind of spiritual duplicity, uh, this divided loyalties. He calls these kinds of Christians with this kind of prayer life or lack of or dryness uh, adulteresses. And it draws on the imagery of God as Israel's husband and Israel as the bride, a bride who often acted with spiritual infidelity, choosing to love and delight in the patterns and the practices of the values of the cultures that surrounded them, rather than instead of delighting in the love of, that God had shown them when he brought them into relationship with him. And the New Testament writers carry this imagery of the relationship between God and those he loves through describing Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. It's this covenantal relationship that we've been brought into. Listen, like any marriage, a relationship, when when you or a relationship, when you stop telling the story to each other of how you fell in love. The wild and crazy things you did just to be near the other person. Do you know I once brought a saxophone just so I could kind of pretend that I was interested in playing. I can say this because Sandy's not here. Just so I could pretend that I was interested in playing it so that she could give me lessons to learn how to play the saxophone. We do, we do stuff like that. I know you're with me. I where I was. <laughs> when you forget to delight in each other, When you stop sharing with each other, your your story grows cold and other stories 
become more attractive. They, they look more alive. You look across and go, oh, maybe I need that. Uh, they look more satisfying. When Christians stop having a prayer life that delights in God's love of them, that retells the story in their heart over and over and over again of how God loved them in Jesus, of how, of how Jesus set aside his privilege, his comfort, his glory, and he humbled himself to find us. He, 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 he went and did stuff to seek us out. And, to, and he did the most audacious of things. He wasn't buying no saxophone or stupid little things like that. He was laying down his life that you might come and, and know him and be reconnected with God, lavishing his love on us, giving his life to us. And we, when we stop praying to God, out of and because of his goodness towards us, when we stop doing that, we don't nurture the love story anymore. And the love story just grows cold. But this love story needs, it needs, it, 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 wants, to be, it wants to be affirmed. And so it goes looking for other lovers. And just like if you came home and found your spouse in bed with another lover, you would not be neutral about that. You would take that personally. In fact, you would see it as an act of hatred towards you. You, you would feel like you would feel the contempt of that person towards you. And James is saying when Christians forget the love story that made them who they are, and they go and chase other stories, they're cheating on God. They're treating God with contempt, like an enemy rather than a lover. They have allowed disordered love priorities to set up in their lives. And once this takes place, we're then capable of being unloving toward others. Because we are no longer controlled by ultimate love. We're capable of nurturing bitterness and envy because because others are now between us and what our hearts are now chasing There are people between our affections of our hearts. And we are right to feel the weight of this. And we are right to be concerned about this. This should weigh on us. But what is God's response here? What does James say God's response is here? To our spiritual adultery. James says, He longs for you to once again have a heart that is pure. And that word pure means singly, single in its focus, not divided, devoted to him, returning to having your identity shaped by his love for you. That's, that's what verse 5, verse 5 is a, all the commentators say, we don't know, it's really hard to translate, but what we know is that God longs to have us back in this pure relationship. And the means of how God will woo us back, Grace. Redemptive grace, greater grace, grace that is unconditional in its love, grace that knows no limit. There's a pretty challenging story about redemptive grace told through the life of a prophet, Hosea. God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Now, in, in his time and in his culture, 
You are not a prostitute because you ticked it on your year 10, I want to be this when I grow up um, form. You're a prostitute because you've been abandoned. You have no other way of, of, of staying alive than to just make yourself this soulless commodity that men just use for their own gratification. There is, it is a soul-destroying existence. There is nothing that you... No, you are not seen as bringing any worth or any, any decency to society. And God says to Hosea, go, go marry that person and go and pour all your love and all your affection and all your resources into her. And he does. And she in turn despises that. And she goes and finds another man, another lover. And God tells Hosea to go and find her and pay the price to get her back and to have her back in his life. It's about a year's wages. And Goma, that's the, that's the lady, has shown no sign that she will, will be faithful. She's, she's done nothing to deserve him to come and do this. What? What? Why does God do stuff like this? Why are these stories in our Old Testament? Why are they there? Why does he tell Abraham to go and sacrifice his son? Why does he do crazy things? Why does he make people in history do these crazy things? Because he is laying down into the story, into the history of conflict, a means, a typological picture, visual aids of how one day he's going to come and do the very thing he's asking the prophet, the patriarch to do. It's a picture written into history of God's love for us. God himself is planning to do exactly that in Jesus. God's love in action for people whose hearts are prone to fall out of love with him, whose hearts are prone to disorder, whose hearts constantly wander to find satisfaction and identity and meaning outside of his love. And once we have Lost our, once we've lost that love, once we've lost that foundation for our soul, what we find is that we need to replace it with other stuff and we begin to tear at each other. We begin to tear at other people's foundations. And that's the war and that's the conflicts. That is friendship with the world. That's agreement with how the world would see communities operate. That's what history's told us. And the world is a value system, if you like. That's the way this word world is used in the New Testament. It's a system of values and practices, a way of doing life that de-gods God and elevates self. James is not saying don't have friends in the world. That's ridiculous. That's nonsense. He's saying don't be a friend with the system that puts them at war with each other. He is saying live a life of of grace-empowered submission to God based on this story of unconditional love that he has for us. It is the grace of God seen in Jesus that, that should woo us back, that should melt the hearts of us to draw near to God as this loving husband rather than to continue to rebel. As we remind ourselves of that story of grace, as we, as we pray that into our soul, we should get there. You know, when you, when you know 
when you remember, when you begin to pray, when you begin to submit your heart again to the love story of God, again and again, that at great cost, God brought us into a relationship with him. The life of Jesus on the cross, bearing the wrath of God towards spiritual adultery, bearing the wrath of God toward double-minded hearts, bearing the wrath of God towards uh, you know, the, the seeking love and the values and the practice of the world over a relationship with God. When you remember that God substituted himself into that place where, where wrath should have been on you, you begin to remind yourself of his love story to you. And when you begin to pray the story of grace into your heart, that Jesus God, that in Jesus God is loving sinners, not condemning them, that he is forgiving them, not frying them, that Jesus has taken the wrath of God so that we can enjoy the love of God, you find a lover for your soul that you can safely submit all your desires to, that you can draw near to, knowing there's nothing about you that could change the nature of his love for you. He has seen you to the very bottom of your heart. He, he moved towards you for, to keep the picture when you had that, that, that image of the, the prostitute from the Old Testament. The, and, and he moved towards you in that way. The past of it, the now of it, the future of that. There is, there is nothing uh, in your past, in your now, in your future that is dissuading this love of God for you. There is nothing greater in those things than his grace and his love and his life for you. Like when you remind yourself of that, That's the story. That's the prayer that has to happen. He knows. He knows you're a goma. That's the, that's the woman out of that story. That is what James means when he says, resist the devil. Resist the offer of other lovers. That there are better ones out there. There is no one who will love you the way God does. And you need to pray this into your soul. And as you do, you will find that you just don't need to go to war over things. Because you have found peace. You have found love for your soul. Now quickly, diagnostic tool uh, that you have actually drawn near to God. The diagnostic tool that you know that you're moving back to God. is not some happy, warm feeling. But rather, it's repentance. It begins with repentance. Look at this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. All, all genuine relationships grieve when they see how uh, they have acted with hostility and contempt to their lover. Yeah? Our relationship with God is no exception. We, we know the level of love we have for God, really, by the depth of sorrow we feel over the sin we commit in our relationships with Him. And it's comprehensive. It's a comprehensive picture of it here. Cleanse your hands. That's, that's an external 
picture. The actions that we do. Like come before God and, and do work in that space. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. That's internal. Like you don't have to punch someone in the face. You can think you want it. You, you can just, yeah, man. If you knew what I could do to you. God says, Prayer begins with our repentance over our divided hearts. It's letting God know in graphic detail how we've allowed other loves to come between us and Him. And it may require you to go and mend some relationships, fix some fences, bring peace into some war zones that you've been fueling and nurturing. But it will never, never see you crushed or diminished. It will never see you shamed out of existence. And that's what we fear when it comes to sin. We fear our sin will destroy us once it's known, once it's out on the table. But but it's already known. God already knows it. He does not... uh, Pour on you more shame. He's not interested in keeping you down. He has more grace for you to receive, to lift you up. It's the humble heart that's lifted up. Christians are strange creatures. There's no one who is more sorrowful than a Christian, and yet there's no one who is more joyful than a Christian. The cure to the conflicts that we have in our lives, the cure to the conflicts that we see in our churches is restored love for God in our hearts. And the question is, are you writing that story into your heart every day you get up, every week you go to work, and every time you come in here? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible book of James as it just peers into our lives and pulls them apart. But as it does, uh, we feel these hands of grace around us, saying that life is found here. Fullness of life is found in surrendering and submitting our hearts to the loving goodness of God. And we pray this morning, as we've been uh, looking into this passage, that if, if our hearts have begun to nurture a story that has uh, reprioritized our loves, that has seen us go after other things over our love of you, that we would come back to you in humble submission, that we would, that we would humble our hearts, that we would once again remind ourselves of the, the measure of your goodness towards us. This story, we're going to look at it next week at Easter, this story of a God who, who, who would just stoop down towards his creation and pick us up in grace. story of a God who would give his life for us, deal with all that keeps us at distance with him, deal with the sin and the ugliness of our lives to, to, to make us into people who can approach God and be in relationship with him and come to him in prayer. Uh, with it, I mean, we find these words, Abba, Father, written in Romans 8. How incredible that we could talk to the God of the universe like a, like a good and loving Father. We pray that this would be our story. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.